Welcome to the ministry of Smyrna Presbyterian Church. Founded in 1914, Smyrna Presbyterian Church believes in the Bible as the Word of God and so desires to preach, teach, pray, and sing that Word so as to know Christ and make Him known in our community, country, and world. We invite you to join us in that mission. Worship services are every Sunday at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. Here now is our pastor, the Reverend Joel Smith. Scripture reading this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 7. We'll begin in verse 1. There we read, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of the people shook as the trees of the forest shook before the wind. The Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shirel-Jabub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the washer's field. Say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your hearts be faint. Because of these smoldering stumps of firebrands and the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, it shall not come to pass, For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within sixty-five years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. The head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol and high as the heaven. Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David. He said, Too little for you to weary men, that you weary my God also. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive, and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land these two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such a day as you have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Please be seated. You've probably heard of people that have called themselves minimalists. It's a cultural trend, usually with those in their 20s and 30s that are seemingly tired of excess and waste and therefore attempt to live minimally. That's the term minimalist. And this is where you get the concept of small houses, tiny houses, car-free living. But the idea is not just being possession-less. As one proponent puts it, Minimalism is the intentional promotion of the things that we most value and the removal of everything that distracts us from it. 
What I find fascinating about this trend is it's only relevant in a culture that has been very much blessed and is very much rich. So blessed that you can actually have the option to live with less. If you were to ask John Paul in Haiti if there are any minimalists there, he would say, yes, we're all minimalists. Not because we want to be, but because that's the only choice there is. We all live with the basics. And I think any Haitian would gladly trade places with any American and tell any American, if you want to live minimally, then come on down. We'll show you how. But nevertheless, we are, as Americans, inclined to more, are we not? And not to less. We accumulate stuff. We can think that happiness and joy can be bought, and as a result, we can carry on a frantic pace that creates stress and anxiety and worry and weariness. And there's probably no time than this, that this is more on display in our country than during the time of Christmas, where shopping is at a all-time high, where ads appeal to our consumerism. And as a result, I think, we can lose the essence of Christmas. Christmas can be lost, in a sense, in the excess. And so I want to propose to you this season to have a minimalist Christmas. But before you think that you need to take the tree out and the gifts and get rid of the eggnog from your fridge, hear me out. I'm proposing to you that we go to a time before Christmas, before the trappings of Christmas, before there was decorations, before there was gifts, before there was Christmas carols. But before you think that that would not be Christmas at all, no, there was Christmas, even back then. I propose to you this Christmas season and for our time of Advent that we would go back to Christmas B.C., Christmas before Christ. Go back to Isaiah's Christmas as he prophesied 700 years before Christ even came so that we can see the essential truths of Christmas. Because I think through stripping away all the rest, we find the core meaning of Christmas. And that puts importance back into all of the rest. And so, yes, this Christmas season, keep the lights, keep the trees and the gifts, the Christmas carols, but see Christmas through Isaiah's eyes. And therefore, promote that which is most valuable. Today, we want to look at the gift of Emmanuel, God with us. And we'll see that in two points. Emmanuel amidst chaos, and then Emmanuel in our midst. First, Emmanuel amidst chaos. One of the challenges of doing a short series like this is that it would be very easily easy just to dive into this book and merely pick out the verses and then immediately apply it to Advent, to Christ. 
And yes, whereas these verses absolutely apply to Advent and to Christ, these prophecies were not given in a vacuum. No prophecy ever was. It always has a historical context to it. A historical context in which it was given. And therefore, it usually has an immediate meaning as well as a greater meaning yet to come. An immediate fulfillment and yet a fulfillment that already has been fulfilled or will be fulfilled. It's what the scholars call the already and the not yet, as we see in most prophecy. And like I said, it'd be easy for us to directly go to Christ. But I think by missing the context, we miss the historical framework in which this was given. And it demonstrates, the context demonstrates to us the greater fulfillment that we need to see at this Christmas time. So bear with me as I lay out for you the context of what is taking place here in Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah ministered during the years of 750 to 700 B.C. His ministry was in the southern kingdom. You remember after the time of Solomon that Israel broke into two, that Jeroboam took ten tribes to the north and set up his own kingdom. And there in the south was Rehoboam with Judah and Benjamin. And Isaiah 7 is about 200 years after that took place. And as Isaiah ministered, King Ahaz was in the south, and Pekah was the king in the north. And even though Israel in the north and Judah in the south were in essence brothers, there was bad blood between the two. There was a family feud, if you would. And rightfully so. If you've been with us on Sunday evening, you understand this as we have been working our way through Hosea. Hosea ministered to the north, to the northern kingdom. And there we see that the northern kingdom was a political and spiritual mess. In fact, from their inception. Jeroboam, one of his first acts as king was to set up two golden calves so that the people could worship there in the north and not have to come to Jerusalem. And so he set up essentially false worship. And he defiled the worship of the true and living God. And as you can imagine, as a result, the whole nation forsook God. So much so that Hosea calls them a whore. Hosea says in chapter 1, verse 2, For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. And that may be harsh to our ears, but that is exactly what they were doing, both physically and spiritually. And so the prophets in the southern kingdom, like Isaiah, warned their kings, do not enter into alliance with the north. Even though those are your people, even though those are your brothers, they have gone astray. And if you enter into a relationship with them, you too will go astray. So continue to be faithful to the Lord. Something that the South and themselves struggled to do. Well, the powerhouse nation of that day was Assyria. 
Perhaps you can liken them to the Alabama Crimson Tide of the day. Sorry, Georgia and Auburn fans. But I would say this, Assyria also was rank pagans, so you also can uh, directly correlate that analogy as far as you want to this morning. But Assyria was a threat to all. And so Pekah, the king of Israel, along with Rezin, the king of Syria, come to Ahaz there in the south, the king of Judah, and say, come into alliance with us so that we can fight against Assyria. Because three are better than one. And Ahaz initially does what is right. And he says, no. To which Israel and Syria says, well, if you're not going to be with us, if you're not a friend of ours, then you are our enemy. And therefore, Syria and Israel join together to attack Judah. And this is no small thing. As we see in verse 3, this created great fears. It says, the heart of the people shook as the tree of the forest shook before the wind, and so too did the hearts of Ahaz. And so God sends Isaiah to give a word of encouragement to Ahaz and says, you do not need to be fearful. Ahaz has done what is right. And when you do what is right, you need not fear the consequences. And that's exactly what Ahaz was doing. He was fearing the consequences. But it says there in verse 4, this word comes to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint. Be careful. We always tend to act rashly when fearful. But Isaiah says to Ahaz, hold on, sit tight, be quiet, be still, settle down, do not fear, do not be anxious, do not let your heart be faint, be of good courage. Some of you, and when I say some of you, I mean all of you, struggle with fear and anxiety and worry you might want to underline those four commands. It's good encouragement, good counsel to be careful, to be quiet, to do not fear, and do not let your hearts be faint. And Isaiah says all these four things to Ahaz because he says that these two smoldering stumps of fire, as he calls them. The modern equivalent, perhaps, would be these two dumpster fires of a nation are not going to have anything against you. In fact, it goes on to say, in verse 8, within 65 years, Ephraim would be no more. Israel in the north would be no more. And therefore... Isaiah says to Ahaz there in verse 9, and this is so important to the context, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And he gives a little play on faith and firmness there. 
Both have the same root in the Hebrew. He who has no faith cannot be firm. And he who is not firm has no faith. And so to bolster Ahaz's faith, God comes to him and says, ask a sign. Ask whatever you want. It says in verse 10, a sign as deep as Sheol and high as heaven. And notice what Ahaz's response is. Well, I can't do that. Far be it from me that I would put the Lord to the test. Sounds good, right? It sounds spiritual. But it's a lie. It's a spiritual smokescreen. He doesn't want a sign because he's already made a plan. And the plan is to enter into alliance with Assyria so that now Judah and Assyria can attack Syria and Israel in the north. You can read of that in 2 Kings 16. In other words, his faith was not firm at all. Rather, he's firm in his own plan. And he has no faith. It reminds me of a time in my former church where there was a woman and her husband that were having marital difficulty and I was trying to convince this woman to come in for counseling and her reply was, well, I wouldn't want to impede on your time, Pastor. You're so busy and I wouldn't want to take any more of it. Sounds good, right? Sounds kind and perhaps even considerate. But it was a lie. It had nothing to do with me. She had already decided to leave her husband and didn't want any counsel against that decision. And the same is true of Ahaz as well. He didn't want a sign. He didn't want Isaiah's counsel. He didn't want the help of the Lord because he was already firm in his plan. And so Isaiah says to him, well, if you are not going to choose, therefore the Lord himself will choose and he will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And it goes on to say that before he is able to eat the curds and the honey, before he's able to choose right from wrong, these idioms of the day are somewhat lost on us and commentators are not quite sure to make of it, but the gist is that judgment is coming soon. It's coming on those nations that you so fear, Israel and Syria, but those nations will be no more. And that same nation that you want to enter into alliance with, Assyria, well, yeah, they're going to attack them and then they're going to come and attack you as well. And they will squeeze you unto an inch of your life. Why is all of this important? Why does this context help to picture for us, helps us to frame this prophecy? You have to understand that here is Ahaz, the king of Judah, the son of David. The one that was to be the regent of God. The one that was to represent God in His godly kingdom. 
And yet this son of David has no faith at all. Rather, he is driven by fear. So much so that he is willing to call upon a godless pagan nation for help rather than the true and living God. And God says to Ahaz, says to the house of David, I'm going to raise up the true king. I'm going to raise up the true son of David. The Emmanuel. The God with us. And this will be the sign. This will be the way that you know that He has arrived. That the virgin shall conceive and give birth. And therefore, this is to be a sign both to bolster faith as well as to demonstrate the consequences of not having faith, of having unbelief. That there is Emmanuel here in the midst of chaos. But that leads us second then to the fulfillment of this prophecy. Emmanuel in our midst. The two Testament writers make this abundantly clear that this was a prophecy concerning the birth of Christ. We read it earlier from Matthew chapter 1. This took place to fulfill what the Lord spoke through the prophet. And we know it to be the prophet Isaiah. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. In other words, this prophecy is front and center. It's in Matthew chapter 1. It's in the first page of the New Testament. The very first chapter is, in fact, the first prophecy of the New Testament. You cannot circumvent your way around it. Earlier, we confessed the truth of the Apostle Creed. And the Apostle's Creed dedicates two lines to this truth. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. He was born of the Virgin Mary. Which in such a succinct creed as the Apostles' Creed is saying a lot that this can't be left out. That we can't just kind of leave it on the side as if it wasn't an important truth. Our King's Kids program, our Wednesday night program for kids, and I hope you have your children a part of it, We are learning the Apostles' Creed right now. We've just learned the Lord's Prayer, and now we're moving into the Apostles' Creed. Two weeks ago, I had the unique privilege of trying to explain what conceived means (laughs) and what version means. Thankfully, I was able to skate around it without any follow-up questions, which I was thankful for. But I think we all, in some ways, blush at a subject like this. And think, do we need to talk about this in the church? Well, the Bible is rightfully discreet about it. It doesn't go into much details. In fact, when Mary was told that she would be with child, she asks, how can this be? Since I am a virgin. And the angel of the Lord simply says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. 
That is all the details that we have. And from that we can say this, that Jesus Christ was conceived not by natural, biological, sexual relationship between a man and a woman. That God took the 23 chromosomes of Mary and created the rest. Yes, out of nothing. By the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And so, therefore, Christ was and still is this day fully man and fully God. But through this process, we shouldn't think that God changed. He did not become any God-less, less God. He is fully God. Rather, He added a nature to Himself. The human nature. He robed himself, in a sense, in our humanity, our humanity. He became a man, and yet, without sin. And yet, as I say this, there is probably no other doctrine that has been more maligned than this, that people roll their eyes and think, oh, this, really? Are we to believe in the Easter bunny as well? And they scoff and mock as if this was a fable or a fairy tale. And others have tried to lessen the importance of it and think, you know, can we just have Christmas without this part, without this doctrine, without these controversial topics, these things that are hard to believe? Put it as bluntly as I can. No, you cannot. You have no room for the virgin birth of Christ. Then you have no Christ. And if you have no Christ, then you have no salvation. And if you have no salvation, then you are lost in your sins. The virgin conception is not a secondary truth. It is the gate to belief, to true and right faith. Because if you can't believe in this, And you can't believe in any of the rest. You cannot believe in Christ's sinless life. You cannot believe in the purpose of His crucifixion and His resurrection and His coming again. In fact, you'd have to explain it all away and therefore you have nothing. You have no Gospel because you have no Christ. But what must not be lost is that this sign was given in the face of unbelief. Ahaz did not believe God. He did not believe that God would protect him from these enemies. And God is essentially saying, who's resin? Who's Pekah? You're the son of David. Do you not remember the promise that I gave to your father that one would be on your throne eternally? And he says, if you can't believe that, then let me tell you something that you're really not going to believe. A promise that should knock your socks off. That a virgin shall conceive and give birth. Because Ahaz might have been the son of David, but he missed seeing and believing in the true son of David. He missed the miraculous And therefore, he missed it all. His fear was greater than his faith. And I think that's the point of this passage. 
and that we are not to do the same. Because yes, we know who the virgin was. We know who the Emmanuel is. But the question is, do we marvel in the miraculous? Is our faith greater than our fear? Do we truly believe that God is amongst us? Not just those 30 plus years when He walked this earth, but rather that He came then so that He could be here now. Even right now. That God is with us right here, right now. Indeed, God's presence has always been on the earth, don't get me wrong, but after the fall, God's presence was not a source of comfort, was it? Remember Adam and Eve when God came after they ate of the fruit of the tree, that forbidden fruits, God's presence did not give them comfort, did it? And rather, they went and hid themselves in fear because of their sinfulness. But it's through the incarnation and ultimately through the purpose why He was incarnate so that He could be crucified and resurrected. That through the faith that we are to have in the Emmanuel, that this presence no longer fears us. Makes us fearful. Rather, this presence is a favorable presence. Presence to be enjoyed. It's a presence to be delighted in. It's a presence that we get to enter into relationship with, that we get to know in the deepest sense of the word. It's only through the incarnation does that which we say at the end of almost every service ring true. That the Lord would make his face to shine upon us and be gracious to us. He'd lift his countenance and give us peace. That's what we celebrate at this time of year. That it's Emmanuel, God with us. That he is Emmanuel all the time. That he's Emmanuel in our sins as our Redeemer, in our prayer as our intercessor, in our fears and worries as our strength and consolation, in our spiritual battle as our warrior, in our dying days as our hope, and in the judgment day as our mediator. He is forever our Savior because He is Emmanuel, God with us. Because He was incarnate, born of the Virgin Mary. And so we are to believe, we are to be confirmed, we are to be upheld and comforted by this truth, that this truth should quell all fears in our hearts. And so Isaiah's Christmas, the essential Christmas, the minimalist Christmas, the core of Christmas is this, that Emmanuel, God is with us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the question is, is he your Emmanuel? And if so, how does that change your Christmas? How does that change all that you are going through at this time? Perhaps this will be the first Christmas without a loved one. 
or that loss of someone that took place many years ago is reopened at this time of season, in this year? Is He your Emmanuel at this time? And is that enough? Perhaps in the face of illness and sickness or uncertainty or even perhaps in newness in the new chapter of life. Is He your Emmanuel? And will that be enough? Or perhaps you fear the state of your children or your grandchildren and the state of this country. Is He your Emmanuel? And is that enough? As we face our sins and our sinfulness, is He your Emmanuel? And is that enough? Do those commands that were told to us in Isaiah 7, verse 4, ring true that we are to be careful, that we are not to fear, but to be quiet and to have good courage, to let your hearts not be faint. Why are those things true? They are true because Emmanuel, God, is with us. Is that not what we celebrate? Isn't this the true reason of celebration? That truth that we will celebrate until we have that which we already have spiritually, we will one day have physically. As we have the light of the eternal Son of God, the God-man that will dwell with us. As we prepare for the table this morning, let me go back to that statement that said of Isaiah to Ahaz, if you're not firm in faith, You're not firm at all. This morning, let us be firm. Firm in our faith. Firm in the perfect Son of God that became the Son of Man. That God came to dwell with man so that man may eternally dwell with God. That is the gift of Christmas. That is truly Emmanuel. God with us. Amen.